five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Okay, so let's get over to Tom Fishburn. And he's got a cartoon this week. Not a lot of not a lot of uh, of words here. It just says, guess your customer lifetime value. And when I got started back in the consulting world, we had a lot of people pitching that they were going to go help you analyze customer lifetime value. And um, I happen to know Martin Baer, who invented lifetime value. So anyway, Martin Baer invented it at Old American Life Insurance out in uh, Kansas City. And Martin and I got to be friends at the Direct Marketing Certification Institute, which I was uh, in the first year class and also was one of the top rated sessions uh, as a presenter. I think I was the top rated presenter, actually. And uh, it kind of made Martin crazy because I was also the valedictorian. Um, but I was challenging a lot of things that Martin had to say. And one of them was customer lifetime value. So let's see what um, and, and its application, actually. So let's see what Tom Fishburne has to say about customer lifetime value and how that relates to your company and how to calculate it, okay? So here we scroll down and he says, a study from CMO Council and Deloitte found that only 17% of chief marketing officers track customer lifetime value. And if you don't know what customer lifetime value is, we'll get into that in just a second. Customer lifetime value is a fundamental marketing tool, but it can be a bit of a guessing game, particularly when future predictions on individuals or cohorts. Yeah, um, right. And it's But it's future predictions based on past performance. Okay, So you look at your customers from five years ago and you say, okay, uh, what are they worth today? And maybe there's, uh, and maybe you spent, you know, ten bucks a piece to get them. It could be a hundred bucks a piece to get them. Whatever you spent, you know, you did advertising and you got an order. And maybe then you lost a little money, but you said we'll make it up uh, in the long run because they'll order again. Uh, that's kind of what the way Martin looked at it. In fact, he said he was selling term life insurance, and he said, okay, we we pay. You know, we, we, we buy rented lists and we mail them out and we uh, then look at how much money came in in the initial sale and maybe the first few months of the policy. But those people are going to are going to hang on to that policy for years and years and years. And most of them aren't going to die right away where we have to pay out the life insurance benefits. So what? So we should be taking into account that that long-term revenue stream. And Martin got into a lot of details with the discounted rate of return and cash, the, the cost of money, and all kinds of stuff, <laughs> which doesn't really change a whole lot. Um, that's why we'll get into how, how I decided it was a more, a more CFO-friendly methodology um, that I learned from John Worth at Woodworker Supply of New Mexico. Anyway, so Tom says, customer lifetime value is a fundamental tool, but it can be a guessing game, particularly when making those future predictions. Acquiring new customers gets most of the glitter and attention in marketing, but retention tactics can be more lucrative, and more granular segmentation can help ensure you're not wasting resources chasing the wrong customers. Okay, a great example of that is that, you know, um, 
fairly early on, catalogers figured out they could acquire customers oftentimes less expensively through digital channels. I did a presentation with um, with uh, Jim, uh, Jim, <laughs> uh, Jim Coogan. There we go, Mr. Coogan, out in uh, from out in Seattle, out, out that way, and he worked with Amazon, and he worked with a lot of catalogers, and he worked with people thinking that. Oh, I'm sorry, it was Travis Seaton. I don't know. It was either Travis or Jim, and uh, it was at the uh, at the Namoa show. And the powerful thing that that I learned was that the catalogers, as they switched to digital acquisition, in other words, they'd been renting lists and getting customers off the rented lists to become their customers. Um, but all of a sudden, they thought that they were they were coming out so great because they could acquire customers at like a quarter of the cost on digital channels uh, because digital was so cheap back in the beginning. And But what they found was as they went forward with those customers, they were not as valuable. And in fact, they were worth maybe a quarter as much. Uh, and this is especially true with Amazon customers because too often Amazon buyers don't think they're buying from you, even though that's where you got it from. They think, I bought it from Amazon. Everybody talks that way. I bought it from Amazon. Well, there is no real, I mean, there's very few products comparatively that Amazon actually sells. And even those, they don't make them or anything, you know, very, very few. Do they have any say in the manufacturer? So you're really buying from some merchant that Amazon is facilitating, either with, uh, with fulfillment by Amazon or just they're fulfilling it themselves depends on how you know how that goes and so catalogers thought they were getting a great deal on acquisition but long term they were petering out so um, let's go over and look at my take on customer lifetime value and um, and we will put that thing up the bath bathtub model okay and uh, here we go over here to this book. Oops. The bathtub model, understanding the true return on your online and offline marketing budget, evaluating the true cost of acquiring a new customer, okay, or the true benefit. Um, the tracking dilemma is in order to assess the acquisition cost, you have to take into account the initial sales value and also take into account the downstream profitability. That was Martin's philosophy or formula. And so, what happens is through time, the cohort of those customers you acquired, Martin would do a campaign, he would acquire, let's say, 10,000 new customers. And over time, they would quit paying their premium in, in term life. And so usually, if we think of this as a year, the first year you lose about 60%. And then, you know, it goes down and down and down. It's actually even more dramatic than that and every file I've ever looked at and I've looked at probably hundreds if not dozens at least um, you you lose a, you know most of your customers never come back they buy once and they never come back okay so right off the bat you have to be realistic about that don't think you can invest an enormous amount in customer acquisition and this was one of the puzzles when when I would talk to, to uh, business owners about their about their lifetime value uh, they'd say, so-and-so consultant came in and told us our lifetime value was $10.28 per customer. 
Say, okay, $10.28. So how much are you spending then to acquire a customer? And they said, $3. And I said, well, if it's $10.28, can't you spend right up to that limit? Well, yeah, but things change and I can't really count on that. And I don't really trust the consultant. And nobody valued lifetime value at 100%. They all looked at this curve and said, well, in spite of the fact that the curve is known, a lot of things change. Competitive climate changes, economics change, uh, the, uh, the, the, the acquisition methods change, um, the media changes, the offer changes, you know, all kinds of things can change. So if you think you can take what customers you acquired five years ago did as gospel, that that will guarantee that a new customer is worth that, that's not the way it works. Further, you know, what I learned when I started with, with Vic Hunter, he said two-time customers are six times more valuable or something like that than one-time customers, which makes sense because once you get them to buy a second time, you know, it's, it's a better chance they'll buy again. You don't lose those customers quite as fast. So he said something to the effect of, so anything you can do to get them to buy again is worth it. Well, it doesn't quite follow because the analysis was done on customers who bought a second time on their own. Now, if you hand them, you know, a $50 bill and say, why don't you buy again? That changes the game. It changes the value. It changes their inclination to buy again. They're not as in love with your company, but they are in love with the, the coupon that you just gave them. And now you're addicting them to those coupons. So all of these things, very, very dynamic, very difficult to tell what's going on. And maybe the biggest challenge is in term life, you know, when they stopped okay so every month you have to send in money and you have to tag it to your policy number and i don't know about you but i've never gotten a letter from my term life company saying we love you so much we hope you keep our policy till the day you die no they don't because if they if you cancel they get to keep all the money what they want is for you to go right till the day before you die and then forget to send the payment in, and they don't have to pay. That's what they'd like. Not maliciously. Just the facts are they they expect you to cancel before you die because they pay out a pretty good return if you do die. The earlier you die from the time you buy the policy, the better uh, your payoff on a return on investment. So they just assume you hold on to it a long time, but then let it expire, cancel. And if you're like me, you're always nervous about letting it expire. But but the customer has to track the customer. In the real world, it doesn't work like that. You know, I started buying from Land's End when I was in college in the in the mid-70s. And I still buy from Land's End. You know, not this isn't today, but, but in the winter, I wear Land's End turtlenecks like every day. And there was a time for about 10 years where I had an alternative supplier and I had reasons to be loyal to them. And... I would guess that Land's End would have thought, and maybe they even stopped mailing me, would have thought I was dead. But then things changed, and I came back, and my password was still good, and I still had an account with history and all the rest, and good for Land's End. And that just goes to show you that it's hard to tell when somebody's dead. And I don't know if my kids still do, but for a while they would buy from Land's End. What if I pass along my jeans <laughs> My customer lifetime value, I could be an everlasting customer. Uh, L.L. Bean, I'm sure, has multi-generational customers, right? 
They have to. I'm sure they do. My dad bought from L.L. Bean and I buy from L.L. Bean. I don't, but that's, that's a possibility. Now, here's a picture. This is actually from Deluxe Check, uh, Deluxe Corporation. And we actually did a study of year after year after year, each cohort, and watched them how they behaved. And as you can see, there's a real consistency of, of customer drop-off where they don't buy again. Now, this was an attempt to figure out who bought again by looking at the business address because this is the business-to-business forms division. And uh, I think we did a pretty good job. It's really hard to say. That's another issue in lifetime value. How do you know who's who? Did they change? If somebody moves away, is that the end of their, is there, that the end of their being a customer? Not necessarily. You know, I've worked with, cl- with clients that had, with, had, that had credit card number as their customer ID, and that works even when they move doesn't work when the customer gets a new credit card, but, you know, <laughs> you can kind of piece it together if they don't move. But there's a lot of variability that you have to keep an eye on. But my point is, is that there's a consistency of customer decay, and this is real data from back in the 90s or something. Um, and in, in direct mail, we had an advantage that we could do a mailing, and then we could see it drop off. And through time, it kind of looked constant, Right? Because you were mailing consistently and you were getting a consistent level of orders. And, uh, and so it masks this whole customer decline and drop off. But the reality was, because we were doing individual campaigns, we could watch this happen. And we could also watch that cohort happen. And, uh, but it, you know, it globs all together and it's difficult to track who's dead and who's not. So when you think about what is the lifetime return on this customer, very, very difficult. And all of these things go into why only 17% think they measure it accurately. And probably I could go in and talk with them and find out that they didn't think that either. So how do we track each customer? It's very difficult because they move around and they change their credit card and stuff like that. When are they dead? We just don't know. I told the land's end. So here was an alternative that, that John Worth came up with. And he said, rather than tracking, you know, you, you get a new customer, you put it in the hopper, and if they don't buy, they turn into a, you know, a, two, a 12 to 24 month recency. And then if they don't buy again, they turn into a, 12, a 24 to 36. And then down in here is about 60 or 70 percent of your customers that haven't bought lately. And he said, you know, we and they we don't know if they're dead or not. They might come back. They might not. We wish we did, but we don't. So he came up with a bathtub model. He said, okay, let's let's put these customers in a bathtub, and the amount that we spend is how much we turn on the faucet, and then that faucet they dumps customers, new customers in. So this is our customer acquisition uh, flow up here, and then you know we've got a certain level of existing customers. We'll shake the bathtub and make sure the heads don't stick up and whatever that line is that's that's our current level of you know and you can make it date or date range like this is the number of 0 to 12 month buyers we have and we know that number or this is the 0 this is the 0 to 24 month this is people who bought in the last 24 months and we can count them up now we put this guy in there and we think okay that should raise the level a little bit but when you look at it a couple months later and you take all those new customers and add it in, it doesn't go up. It might go down if you didn't replace enough because what's going on? What's going on is they're going out the bottom. Okay, and you don't know which ones are going. 
There's customers who say, you botched that up so bad, I'm never coming back. And I'm going to tell any of my friends about it, and they're not coming back either. But you don't know who those are. You don't know until time goes by and they're dormant for a certain amount of time. You don't know who's coming back and who isn't, right? And yet you're marking it to all of them. Very, very difficult, okay? And so, but if we keep track of the level itself, we can have an idea of the health of the company. See that? And further, we can e even keep track of any given set of acquired customers. So we can say, well, let's just look at the Amazon acquired customers. Let's see how they do. And that's the kind of thing we do. See how we did in this mailing. That's what we do with the machine learning and the modeling that we've done for 25 years. We say, okay, let's look at this cohort. How are they acquired? And how do they do subsequent downstream? Now, the CFO likes this. Because the CFO is used to thinking in terms of, you know, what they learn in accounting school is if we want to make a decision on a machine tool, you say, okay, how much was that machine tool going to cost? hundred grand. And how much greater production will we get if we have, you know, if we buy that one in addition to what we already have for machines? And they say, well, it'll, it'll give us a 5% increase in throughput, okay? And your throughput is, let's say, a million dollars a month. Okay, so that will increase your throughput 50 grand. Okay, at 50 grand increased throughput, now not all of that goes to margin. Uh, maybe it's 20% is margin. Okay, so you've got $10,000. So that will be a 10-month payback on that machine tool. 10 months. After 10 months, we paid it all back, and now it starts to make us money. That's the way accountants think. That's the way CFOs think. They started as accountants and they worked their way up. Okay, so this model gives you a flow and says, okay, we're spending this amount of money and we're going to get downstream, we're going to get this back, but we're going to lose some. And we actually have spreadsheet models that let you adjust the acquisition amount to find the optimal amount of long-term value. Let's call it long-term. You can say, well, what do we need to spend for an 18-month payback? And what's great about it is, if we go back to Tom Fishburne, which we are happy to do, if we go back to Tom Fishburne, here's the way the CFO thinks of marketing. You have full accountability for this P&L. Great, where are my controls? You control that one lever, revenue. Drop. If revenue drops, pull it. What does it do? It cuts your marketing budget. Why do we do that? Because on a P&L, the marketing budget is a cost that can be easily identified and easily eliminated. We don't have to spend money on marketing because it isn't producing any goods, right? But if they understand the bathtub model, they will understand that the health of our business requires us spending money to keep new customers coming in and to maintain the old ones. And sometimes it's more profitable to stir the pot of the old customers. Oops, I just went back to that one. Sometimes it's more profitable to stir the pot of the old ones, spend money there, than it is to acquire new ones for a while. Right? But the CFO understands return on investment. What they don't understand is, is that the marketing cost line directly connects to the revenue line. That's not obvious on a P&L. It's, it's super not obvious. And that's why we get these, that, that's why we get these one lever approaches 
And the next one says, marketing is more than communication. In case of emergency, break glass. All that's in here is a memo to cut our marketing budget. Okay, that's because the CFO really is in charge of keeping you guys in business. Don't get upset with them. The problem is you haven't communicated the, the relationship between ad spending and the health of the business. And that is what is so wonderful about the bathtub model. So the flow model gets the CFO to understand it. We can do cohort analysis. We do it with big numbers, so it's statistically valid. Lifetime value is based on return on investment with a time frame rather than knowing which customers are dead and which ones are, aren't. Don't sweat the small stuff. You don't know how many touches your, your customers are getting. They're looking at your website. They're bouncing around. They might see an ad. They could see an ad in the Wall Street Journal or they could see an ad on YouTube or Facebook. You don't know what they're all being exposed to, so you can't count those all as cost. It's kind of a big cloud of cost in the marketing budget. But what you're trying to figure out is which of those spends drive the longest and the greatest customer value. So you got to make some specific assumptions, but ultimately it's all about tuning your marketing budget effectively and spending the money in the most efficient ways. I'm John Miglosh. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart. Bye-bye.